0: All right. In our final segment, I think we could do no better than to quote from the book we've been talking about, Deadline Artists, America's Greatest Newspaper Columns. In truth, this is probably a subject we could devote a whole hour to, but we're going let's take about 10 or 12 minutes here and read some excerpts from some of these excellent columns, starting with the immortal H.L. Mencken. Mencken set a standard for the modern political columnist, and I think we'll excerpt from his uh, column titled... Gamaliel Ease, referring to Warren Gamaliel Harding, our 29th president, a man who uh, was probably in many ways our worst president, at least up until George W. Bush. And like George W. Bush, his thought processes did not seem to translate well into his oratory, or perhaps they translated perfectly. Take your pick. But writing about Warren G. Harding's (laughs) speech-making ability, said Mencken in 1921, He writes the worst English I've ever encountered. Referring to the fact that he'd been a newspaper man before he was a politician. It reminds me of tattered washing on the line. It reminds me of stale bean soup, of college yells, of dogs barking idiotically through endless nights. It is so bad that a sort of grandeur creeps into it. It drags itself out of the dark abyss of pish. It crawls insanely up the topmost pinnacle of posh. It is rumble and bumble. It is flap and doodle. It is balder and dash. But I grow lyrical. More scientifically, what is the matter with it? Why does it seem so flabby, so banal, so confused and childish, so stupidly at war with sense? If you first read the inaugural address and then heard it intoned, as I did, at least in part, then you will perhaps arrive at an answer. That answer is very simple. When Harding prepares a speech, he does not think of it in terms of an educated reader locked up in jail, but in terms of a great horde of of stone heads gathered around a stand. That is to say, the thing is always a stump speech. It is conceived as a stump speech and written as a stump speech. More, it is a stump speech aimed primarily at the sort of audience that the speaker has been used to all his life. To wit, an audience of small-town yokels, of low political serfs, of morons, scarcely able to understand a word of more than two syllables and wholly unable to pursue a logical idea for more than two centimeters." Such imbeciles do not want ideas, that is, new ideas, ideas that are unfamiliar, ideas that challenge their attention. What they want is simply a gaudy series of platitudes, of threadbare phrases terrifically repeated, of sonorous nonsense driven home with gestures. They like phrases which thunder like salvos of artillery. Tight fabric of ideas would weary and exasperate the audience. What it wants is simply a loud burble of words, a procession of phrases that roar, a series of whoops. That is, if you're the sort of man who goes to political meetings, which is to say, if you're the sort of man that Harding is used to talking to, which is to say, if you're a jackass. You know, Mencken could have been a pretty good writer if he didn't hold back so much. And uh, from 1881, we have some uh, selections from Ambrose Bierce, the first entries in his Devil's Dictionary. He defined love as a temporary insanity, curable my marriage. An egoist as a person of low taste, more interested in himself than in me. He defined positive as mistaken at the top of one's voice, and my favorite, opposition in politics, the party that prevents the government from running amok by hamstringing it. And since we've entered a humorous vein, let's go to that uh, epic piece by Dave Barry titled How to Argue Effectively. Said Barry, I argue very well. Ask any of my remaining friends. I can win an argument on any topic against any opponent. People know this and steer clear of me at parties. Often as a sign of great respect, they don't even invite me. You too can win arguments. Simply follow these rules. One, drink liquor. Suppose you're at a party and some hot-shot intellectual is expounding among on the economy of Peru, a subject you know nothing about. If you're drinking some health-fanatic drink like grapefruit juice, you'll hang back. But if you drink several large martinis, you'll discover you have strong views about the Peruvian economy. You'll be a wealth of information. You'll argue forcefully, offering searing insights and possibly upsetting furniture. People will be impressed. Some may leave the room. Second, make things up. Suppose in the Peruvian economy argument you're trying to prove that Peruvians are underpaid, a position you base solely on the fact that you were underpaid. And you'll be damned if you're going to let a bunch of Peruvians be better off. Now, don't say, I think Peruvians are underpaid. Instead, say, The average Peruvian salary, $1981, adjusted for revised tax base, is $1,452 per annum, which is $800 below the gross poverty level. Note, always make up exact figures. If an opponent asks you where you got your information, make that up too. Say, this information comes from Dr. Hovell Moody's study for the Buford Commission published in May of 1982. Didn't you read it? Three, use meaningless but weighty sounding words and phrases. Memorize this list. Let me put it this way. (laughs) In terms of, vis-a-vis, per se, as it were, so to speak, you should also memorize some Latin abbreviations such as QED, EG, and IE. These are all short for I speak Latin and you don't. Now suppose you want to say Peruvians would like to order appetizers more often, but they don't have enough money. You'll never win arguments talking like that. But you will win if you say, let me put it this way, in terms of appetizers vis-a-vis Peruvians qua Peruvians, they would like to order them more often, so to speak, but they do not have enough money, per se, as it were, QED. Now, only a fool would challenge that statement. For use snappy and irrelevant comebacks, you need an arsenal of all-purpose irrelevant phrases to fire back at your opponents when they make valid points. The best are, you're begging the question, you're being defensive. Don't compare apples to oranges. What are your parameters? This last one's especially valuable. Nobody other than engineers and policy wonks have the vaguest idea of what a parameter means. So here's how to use your comebacks. You say, as Abraham Lincoln said in 1873, your opponent says Lincoln died in 1865. You say, you're begging the question. You say, Liberians, like most Asians, your opponent says Liberia's in Africa. You say, you're being defensive. And finally, compare your opponent to Adolf Hitler. This is your heavy artillery from when your opponent is obviously right and you were spectacularly wrong. Bring Hitler up subtly. Say, that sounds especially like something Adolf Hitler might have said. Or, you certainly do remind me of Adolf Hitler. So that's it. You know how to out-argue anybody. Don't try to pull this on people who generally carry weapons. All right, let's do one that's quite a bit less frivolous, the one we mentioned in the uh, discussion with Mr. Avalon, titled, To Root Against Your Country. Written by Art Hoppy and published in the San Francisco Chronicle on the 5th of March, 1971. Said Art Hoppy, The radio this morning said the Allied invasion of Laos has bogged down. Without thinking, I nodded and said, good. And having said it, I realized the bitter truth. Now I root against my own country. That's how far we've come in this hated and endless war. This is the nadir I've reached in this winter of my discontent. This is how close I border on treason. Now, I root against my own country. How frighteningly sad this is. My generation was raised to love our country, and we loved it unthinkingly. We licked Hitler and Tojo and Mussolini. Those were our shining hours. Those were our days of faith. They were evil. We were good. They told lies. We spoke the truth. Our cause was just. Our purpose is noble, and in victory, we were magnanimous. What a wonderful country we are. I loved it so. But now, having descended down the torturous, brutalizing years of this bloody war, I've come to the dank and lightless bottom of the well. I've come to root against the country that once I blindly loved. I can rationalize it. I can say that if the invasion of Laos succeeds, the chimera of victory will dance once again before our eyes, leading us once again into more years of mindless slaughter. Thus I can say... I hope the invasion fails. But it is more than that. It is that I have come to hate my country's role in Vietnam. I hate the massacres, the body counts, the free fire zones, the napalming of civilians, the poisoning of rice crops. I hate being a part of Me Lai. I hate the fact that we have now dropped more explosives on these scrawny Asian peasants than we did on all of our enemies in World War II. I hate my leaders who over the years have conscripted our young men and sent them there to to kill or be killed in a senseless cause simply because they can find no honorable way out. No honorable way out for them. I don't root for the enemy. I doubt they are any better than we are. I don't give a damn anymore who wins the day. But because I hate what my country's doing in Vietnam, I emotionally and often irrationally hope that it fails. It's a terrible thing to root against your own country. If I were alone, it wouldn't matter, but I don't think I'm alone. I think many Americans must feel the same sickening emotions I feel. I think they share my guilt. I think they share my rage. If this is true, we must end this war now, in defeat if necessary. We must end it because all of Southeast Asia is not worth the hatred, shame, guilt, and rage that is tearing Americans apart. We must end it. Not for those among our young who have come to hate America, but for those who somehow managed to love it still. I doubt that I can ever again love my country in that unthinking way that I did when I was young. Perhaps this is a good thing. But I would hope the day will come when I can once again believe that what my country says and once again approve of what it does. I want to have faith once more in the justness of my country's causes and the nobleness of its ideals. What I want so very much is to be able once again to root for my own native land. And you know what? I think we're going to have to stop right there in terms of reading columns because uh, that's about as powerful as they get. But uh, because this book is kind of an embarrassment of riches, I think in the weeks to come, we will go to it from time to time and read some other memorable pieces by America's great columnists. Mm -hmm. That does it for today's program. We'll have to defer our obituaries on Muammar, Gaddafi, and Al Davis, who I'm sure are shaking hands now as we speak. We'll see some of you tonight up in Chico. And for more information about the event, dial up kzfr.org. Our thanks to John Avalon, editor of Deadline Artists, America's Greatest Newspaper Columns. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening, of course, to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time.